This week on FX Guide TV. We go behind the scenes of the exciting World War II drama, Red Tails. This and more coming up next. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. I'm Angie Dale. This week we return to ILM to discuss the Second World War drama, Red Tails. Now this is actually another relatively small budget film, well small for ILM anyway, but like a few films that we've seen lately, they are smaller budget films that feel like much bigger budget films, thanks to really good visual effects. Bandits! Hundreds of them! Six o'clock! It's got German markings. Let's get them! Where are the damn fighters going? Is there anything left of our escort? Hang on to your command, Colonel. You stayed at Bridge. I need pilots who will put the bombers ahead of themselves. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, this is a project that actually took quite a long time to come to the screen in the sense that George Lucas became interested in this in, I think, in 88 and was almost going to make it in like 92, is that, is that right? Yeah, it's been something that he's um, sort of held close to his heart for quite some time. Um, he wanted to make it a lot earlier, but uh, it didn't kind of work out for various reasons. And so, yeah, now is the time, and uh, he's uh, pretty excited about the project. And so he was a fan of The Wire, so, well, maybe you could explain how, how uh, it worked, because he didn't direct, the, George Lucas didn't direct the film. Yeah, no, George didn't direct it. Anthony Hemingway uh, directed it, and he's a director um, from TV, most, mostly famous for TV, and the actual show The Wire, which is a very gritty kind of urban show. Um, and so George was attracted to that and asked if he would be interested in directing the movie and he jumped at the chance and then he was lucky enough through his connections to bring across the actors from The Wire too. So he already had that sort of rapport with the actors and it all seemed to fit quite well for this project. And for a period drama this is very much a true story. So you've got two aspects of the visual effects there that point to realism. One, you want to do justice to the people that actually served and died for their country. And then, of course, secondly, you know, you want to just make a historical piece authentic because it really happened. Um, yeah. How much, how much or how far did you try and take that in terms of, because it was, after all, not a documentary. We tried to keep everything sort of very accurate to the period. You know, the, the planes, um, how they looked, the, you know, the, the wear and tear, the, the, the old putting the actual custom logos and paint on them, you know, with their little um, um, logos they would do in those days and all that kind of stuff we could try to keep it as authentic as possible by looking through as much reference material and there's quite a lot out there um, exactly how these planes looked in the day. And you had the advantage of actually having a consultant that could sort of give you first-hand input? Yeah, it was great on the project. Um, you know, it's hard to get, these things aren't easy to do. You know, when you, you're flying planes around, you know, there's all the flight dynamics and the subtle, subtleties in that. Um, you know, with the, just how the air buffets the plane, um, you know, how fast it can fly. Can they take a corner this quickly? You know, how do they slow down? How do they land? I mean, there's all these things that you, you know, as an animator, you can sort of think about it and try a few things out, but actually having someone to come in who's an expert and flies these, these period planes every day, you know, it is invaluable. So yeah, we got Ed Shipley, who's a real character. He came in and sat with us and looked at some early tests and gave us a lot of great feed feedback about what these planes could and couldn't do. In this area of aviation, it is, it's a noisy, vibrating, rough, 
mechanical era. These are not kind of the, the flights that we're used to where everything's kind of smooth and, and, uh, and hermetically sealed. So it must have been quite a lot of work because you need to get a lot of that into the animation. The actual sort of planes aren't just this pristine, rigid sort of things. No, I mean, they're not, they're not rigid. They're very alive, you know. The, the wings have a little bit of flex in them. Parts of the cowl, you know, what we'd do if you're on a, a close-up of a plane and you're sitting on the wing, wing, put the camera on the plane, and you see the cowl, you know, we would have the engine manifold sort of vibrate slightly and the cowl would be slightly loose. Just like, you know, it was in the day. It, it just all adds to the sort of realism of the, of the shot. Now let's talk about the, the framing and the staging of the, what is after all, primarily computer animation of the air-to-air -air stuff because mm -hmm. first of all it was, a, it was actually a plot point in the film Aviator when they were trying to make a film that unless you had some clouds you couldn't really perceive what the planes were doing relative to speed yeah. and, and even just spatial orientation. So I presume you had to have quite a lot of atmospherics in there to, to actually even block the shots. Yeah, we did. You know, it's, it's really tough. You don't get a sense of speed. If you're in a plane filming another plane and you're traveling along, you know, and it's a beautiful blue sky out there, you don't have any, any, anything to show speed, some, you know, something relative in space to show the speed. So a lot of the time we would put in wispies, we would call them, and it's just very faint pieces of cloud just going by, rushing, you know, past the camera and past the plane. And it just helped give you that sense of speed and also where the planes were relative to each other, you know, all that kind of stuff helps create a realistic looking shot. So what about just mounting the shots? Once you've got some atmospherics to, to give you a, a stage to do the, the work, of course, this is again, like, as I said before, like it's a mechanical era. So you have a lot of eye line sight contact on where other planes are and then sort of staging those shots. And even your camera is effectively what? I guess you could think of it like a plane. Yeah, you were always animating. If it was one, if you were just the shot of was of one plane, you were always animating two, because you're filming it with a with a camera. And that camera, you want to feel like it's a real shot. So you've got to think, how would they film this in the real world? You know, if we could take a which you can, but if we could take a P51 up there, if we weren't doing it digital, it would have to have a camera plane. So there would be another plane flying in front of it with a camera mount to it somewhere. That camera would be getting vibration from the plane. You know, it would be getting, um, you know, uh, dynamics on the plane, you know, it's buffeting from the wind and everything as it's flying along. Plus the plane um, it's filming is getting the same kind of buffeting. So we really try to think about that when we were animating these shots. And so we always think about the camera as well as the actual plane we're animating and co as well as composition, um, you know, and shot design, which we had to think about a lot too. You know, we were also thinking about the camera plane as well as the plane we were animating. And in terms of lighting those shots once you've staged them, I mean, there is a, a single obvious source, the sun, there's a bunch of bounce light, yeah. and there's obviously ambient, but that's it. You don't get a lot of, I mean, it doesn't seem that there'd be a lot of room to be able to cheat any other sort of motivational lighting, yet that may be kind of restrictive, or were you just turning all the action relative to where the sun was to kind of light them? Well, it all depended sort of on the feel, you know, did you want to be in shadow side, do you want to be in sunlight, you know, did you want it sort of a rim light on it? Um, you know, so we could play with the position of the sun. We wanted to keep the sequence sort of, you know, it's, it's interesting, you always want to keep the sequence, you know, the baddies are coming right to left, you know, the old cowboy thing, that they ride out left to right and they come back right to left. You know, so we want to feel like the planes, you know, when they're facing off with the, the German planes coming in, our heroes, you know, they're going left, left to right, so they may be, you know, 
we could play the sun on the other side of them so they've got a nice rim light and they're sort of in shadow and you know and that kind of thing and that kind of feels quite heroic in a way um, you know and then you just want to always make sure that everyone's sort of orientation of you know and the sun position helps in that too you know of which way you're flying and, and who's flying at which direction always sort of plays true. So if you're above the clouds or at least at cloud level you're going to have pretty high con lighting because obviously for those scenes that are like that um, and that presents a, a problem in of itself, doesn't it? Because if you've got a virtual uh, plane, this is the magnification, what I call the driving out the window shots, which mm. is you couldn't really hold an exposure on a normal camera out the window at high con and see anything inside. It's either black inside or it's white out windows, one of the two. Mm -hmm. How hard was it to keep the realism and balance the theatrical requirements of actually being able to have more sort of, you know, movie lighting? Well, that's the beauty of special effects. If we were to shoot that for real, you know, the we would be exposing for the interior of the cockpit and then outside would just be blown out. Um, but, you know, we can pull a bit of that back because we're doing a composite. So we can put a bit more detail back in the, the clouds. We don't want to really push it too far so it doesn't look realistic. But one of the things that I love about the shots is the, uh, the ref um, refraction on the glass. You know, when you see the interior of the, the cockpits and the glass isn't perfect and it has a little wave to it, you know, especially on the edges of the mullions of the windows. And you really see the plane in the background, you know, doing its sort of um, positioning, its flight dynamics against the plane we're in. Um, and then it just at the edge of the window frames as it gets refraction, you know, the, the plane sort of breaks up, the background plane breaks up, and it just looks so real, especially when you've got the little bit of dirt on the edge of the glass and everything. All those little things really help it, you know, put it in some sort of reality. Was there anything uh, in terms of the animation of the planes that surprised you in terms of either what the planes could actually do or what they did with the planes? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was, we were called to do some movie shots, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's an action movie, um, we, you know, the planes couldn't do some of the moves, you know, so we were exaggerating the movement slightly, but, you know, we still wanted to keep it sort of believable. So a lot of the times, you know, we would be putting them into a, a tighter bank than they could really go in or flipping them around a little bit faster than they could go. But we were really trying to stay true to real flight dynamics. The one thing that is sort of um, interesting is George wanted this shot called the flip trick, where um, one plane's following another, um, a German guy's on one of uh, our hero's tail, and he pulls up this um, trick where he pulls the nose of the plane around, he does sort of a 360 or a 180, sorry, comes around and gets on the tail of the other plane. And we never knew, even Ed Shipley never knew whether that was doable, you know, in reality. And we sort of looked at it and that came about because it was a story from an actual airman in World War II, it might have been a Tuskegee airman, who saw that maneuver um, or, or performed that maneuver on another, on another, on his enemy. Um, and pulled it off. And so we wanted to incorporate that in the movie as a story point. Um, so we sat down, we looked at it with Ed, and he was saying, I, I don't know if we can do it. And then basically it came down to, you know, if you were in that situation and there was a guy on your tail and you were gonna die, you either try something crazy or you, you're, you're done. So he said, yeah, you know, maybe if we were in that situation, you know, yeah, I think we could pull it off. Um, and it's a kind of fun point in the movie. So a fundamental point of the film is the idea of fighter escorts um, because of the horrendous attrition rates due to the nature of the, uh, the engagement, um, which meant that you had to blow stuff up. Yes. Um, how did that 
work in the film and did you end up with having to iterate that a lot for what we might perceive that happened? I mean, they're carrying aviation fuel, it's highly uh, combustible, but I mean, did you have any trouble working out what the look of the destruction sequence was going to be like? Yeah, you know, we, we did have it. There was there's some great gun um, sight footage, you know, from World War II. Basically, there's a 16 millimeter camera mounted in the wings of the plane next to the guns, and when you pull the trigger, it triggers the camera. So the camera in the plane films the actual, and that's a story point in our movie. They look at gun camera footage when they come back to base, and they see the kills that lightning did, and it's kind of fun. They all sit down and they all watch it. It's great. So that, that footage exists, you know, um, from World War II. So we looked at that, and it's very interesting, the actual um, destruction. You can see the tracer bullets go off, and they, they leave a beautiful smoke trail. And then you see them just missing their target, missing their target, and then they go on target. And then all you see is just fragments coming off the plane um, in the distance. And then suddenly, boom, that wing will break off or something. And it will go into a spiral and the smoke shoots back towards the camera, you know, the plane we're in. And it's a beautiful thing when you see it. I mean, it's destruction, it's war, it's terrible, but it's a beautiful thing when you see it. Um, and then, of course, the wing that's taken away, this wing that in, is intact gives lift. So it'll always turn that way. So this wing gives lift and it'll turn this way. If this wing goes, then it'll, um, this right. wing stays, it'll turn that way. Um, so there's little things to, you know, we like, oh yeah, of course, you know, when you look at that footage and you work this stuff out. So we try to stay true to that footage. Um, obviously, um, you know, a slight uh, movie magic put on top, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really beautiful stuff when you see it. It's kind of the best part about this industry and this sort of the job that you have in the industry is you get a new film and suddenly you get to learn about a whole new world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's different every day. You know, one project you do in Monsters, the next project you do in Fighter Planes, you know, it's great. So yeah, and, and you know, the good thing about it, you know, is research and meeting people like Ed talking to us about these flight dynamics, you know, on the planes and what we can and can't do. And, um, you know, and then just looking at all this amazing footage from World War II, you know, um, and studying that and, and just, being in awe of what these guys did for us, you know, it's incredible. This isn't a huge budget film. It's um, obviously it's got a, a sensible budget, but it's not like you know, a mega blockbuster tentpole summer picture. Um, and it struck me that one of the things that you would start to run out of quickly in the kind of cupboard of assets is these planes cover a lot of distance, and you need a digital environment quite often because you obviously can't use plate photography because you can't choreograph to planes that aren't there. Did you have any issues or was it just like vast amounts of matte paintings? I mean, how did you deal with just having to plow through huge amounts of effectively ground geometry or environment, digital environment? Yeah, the digital environments were vast on the movie because, I mean, it's a bit more forgiving when you're higher up in the sky because you don't perceive the background moving as much relative to the plane. So imagine that's in a big dome, you know, but they have to do a, a massive psych painting in digital matte painting for the sky and the clouds and the distant ground. But then it gets really tough when you get down low. And we have a lot of sequences where, you know, the planes are flying fast over the treetops, you know, and, and they're exchanging, um, you know, um, fire. And when you get that kind of thing, it, you know, a couple of times we had plate photography, but when it's very dynamic like that, it had to go all CG and it'd be a full 3D environment, 3D trees, ground, buildings, everything. A lot of the bases we fly through are all CG. So 
it was um, it was a huge undertaking for the guys to make those environments and you know and we wanted to show them off to the to their best you know so um, we were thinking about shot design about how to you know how to fly through these environments in a fun way. Now it wasn't just the sort of trees and fields that you needed to do because some of these airfields had to themselves be populated. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there was a huge amount of sort of digital double work to do and, you know, and vehicles and all sorts of those. Um, there's a few sequences in the movie where we established the actual um, airman's base, you know, the Tuskegee Airman's base. Um, and so we had to create that whole environment, you know, all the tents and all the mud and the, you know, the dirt and, and really feel like a period piece you're actually there. Um, and it, it goes on for, you know, forever. You see this huge base. And we had to put in, you know, we did a lot of mocap for the guys, you know, so we used motion capture. And we, you know, um, we didn't do a lot, you know, it's funny, a lot of times you're doing action movies, you're getting the guys in the motion capture suits to jump around and fight and all this kind of stuff. We're asking them, can you just do milling? You know, can you mill for a while? Milling you know, around. Yeah, can you just have a sort of a, a chat, you know, or lift that box and put it over there. So it's got that kind of, you know, motion capture. But if you don't do it in motion capture and you animate it, you know, when you see those scenes and you see the little people, they're not quite moving right, and it sort of takes you out of the moment. So we did that kind of motion capture where we set up on our stage where we are today, and we did a lot of little um, you know, shoots of guys milling and talking and chatting and riding bicycles and running and walking and all that kind of stuff, and then we populated the bases with that motion capture and, you know, and hundreds of guys. You know? So it was quite an undertaking. You have to play place each one you know in groups of people and you could maybe duplicate them and turn them and put them over here and offset them and you know all that kind of stuff but we just wanted to fill the base and make it feel like a very active environment and the same goes for the airfields when the uh, you know we're attacking the airfields we have to populate them with planes on the ground which get destroyed and so there's destruction to do there also all the little digital doubles running and getting blown up so there's a little bit more of an interesting motion capture that we did but yeah so it's a lot of work to do that did you have to do digital doubles for the principal cast for, for example, shots from the outside where you see them inside the planes? Yeah, we had to do that. We had to create digital doubles for all the cast, the principal cast, yeah. So they came and they do um, a session where we take a, a bunch of photographs of them of all different angles and a sort of a, a, a zero lighting so it doesn't have shadow. Um, and then basically we build a digital double representation of them, which is pretty good, you know. I mean, it can hold up to a pretty medium kind of, you know, shot where we're putting them, in, putting them in the cockpits, you know. A lot of the time we're animating them as they bail out, you know, so they would go CG there. We might do a transition from live action to CG, so they would get out of the cockpit and then just fall onto a blue mat. And in that time, we take over into a CG guy, so we have to match their body position perfectly and then then do a takeover transition where they fly off and they tumble you know back in space through the air um, and pull their chute and stuff like that we had to do that quite a few times as well so it's quite difficult and while ILM was the lead facility you actually uh, also worked with some other teams yeah we did we did a uh, we worked with some of our uh, vendors yeah it, it worked out great we had sort of two main vendors on the uh, on the team and then a bunch of um, other vendors as well um, and they all did a great job and you know it was great sort of interacting with those guys they were they were just super keen super nice um, you know and then just talking through the shots with them you know and come up with ideas and you know they're at the end the ones doing the work and they're presenting it to us before it goes up to the ranch for the guys to see it so um, you know we want to get it right so that um, you know we would we would sort of um, critique the work
on a, we would be going through maybe, I would say, a, a few of those um, review sessions a day. And it was all sort of different times in the world, you know, some of them were in Europe, um, some of them were in LA, so they're on our time. Um, but yeah, we had to work around, you know, their schedules as well. What was the sort of shot count on the film? The shot count was in the 1500 range, so it was quite a lot of shots. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some of the main uh, vendors were working on five, six hundred shots apiece. So it was, it was like a whole movie project in itself. Um, you know, we, we kept a few of the sequences here as well at ILM. We did the opening title sequence, which we did early so that then we could show the vendors, you know, this is the kind of quality, this is the kind of look we're after. You know, we've worked a lot of this stuff out, you know, how the plane should move, what we can do, um, you know, and, and how the, the paint and how they look, period piece, you know. And so we could give that to them as a guide to where we need to go with it. I mean, it's, it's folklore now that George Lucas, when he was working on Star Wars, looked at World War II sort of fighter plane stuff. Yeah because back then they didn't have previs and they just used that as reference. You had the real reference, but did you also have previs? Yeah, there was quite extensive previs done on the show. They, they prevised every shot for us, um, which was great. And the previs team was at the ranch. So, you know, Anthony and, and George was there, you were there and they could just, um, you know, see what was happening all the time. Um, and it's interesting because the previs was done in um, George's um, actual, he has his own software that uh, they've been oh, really? creating. Yeah, and it's called Zviz. Um, and so they were doing the actual previs in this tool that was created for him, um, which was great. And then when, that, when those shots were done um, and he had a buy off on them, you know, those files were then given to us at ILM. And we thought, let's have a look at this Zviz tool and maybe we can actually do the animation, the actual final animation in the same package and save ourselves a bunch of time. And so we looked at that software and it was really great. And so we started developing it a little bit more beyond its capabilities for just previous for actual animation and put some extra tool sets in there. And we actually animated the opening title sequence in Zviz, which mm. is really, you know, taking their files as a starting point and then fleshing them out from there. Um, we might change up some shot design now and again when uh, Anthony wanted to play with it, you know. But um, basically, yeah, we... Uh, we were animating in the same package as the previous was done in, which is a sort of rarity for us. What was your pipeline there? Like, what were you doing the rest of it in? And presumably you're rendering in what, RenderMan? Yeah, we were rendering in RenderMan and through, you know, a lot of it is um, ILM's proprietary software. So the scenes would come out of Zviz and go into the proprietary software here to get rendered. Um, but then, you know, a lot of the world sort of works in a different package. So it was kind of tough because we'd have to, the files we'd done, we'd have to sort of, um, you know, package those up in a certain format to send them out, you know, so, and then everyone wants to work, you know, we worked with Pixelmondo mainly and, and UPP, and, um, you know, they work in different software packages, you know, they all have their own sort of off-the-shelf or own developed software, so. Uh, IBM's, uh, you know, now um, obviously signatory to Alembic, was this an Alembic transfer process that you could use, or did you have to translate the files more? It was, it, this is pre-Alembic. Alembic looks ex extremely exciting, I have to say, um, but this was pre-Alembic, so we would have to transfer. We used sort of Maya's, um, you know, Autodesk's FBX format um, to actually sort of transfer the files across between vendors, so we could take it out of Zviz. If we were working in Zviz, we could take it out and put it into Maya. We had a pipeline to do that here at ILM, and then from then we could actually export an FBX file for them. 
uh, for the vendors and then they can ingest that FBX file into you know 3D Studio Max or you know they could get that into any other sort of software they were using so that was sort of the universal translator for us. I mean it's absurd to talk about a SQL because of course it makes no sense but if you were doing a similar project again it seems like it would be a candidate for Olympic. Oh absolutely I mean especially now you know the Olympic thing's very interesting because now we're working a lot more with sort of outsour you know outsourcing and and, and, and working with uh, third-party vendors and you know, and, and it's just great that we can actually share files and, and have this common format that, you know, we don't really care what you do it in, but here's the file so you can get it in there to that package to actually work on it. And, and, and again, get that back and for us to work on it on our software too. So yeah, that's a really, that's going to be a great time saver and I'm looking forward to those days. Well, look, it's an epic production and, and a great story to be told. And uh, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy seeing your work. So thanks for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you very much. We count our victories by the bombers we get to their targets. By the husbands we return to their wives. By the fathers we get back to their children. Come on, Junior, fail! If you want, you can follow us on Twitter as FX Guide News, or now we're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com forward slash FX Guide, where we post not only cool FX Guide stuff, but also FX PhD news and updates. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.